Hey, you. Want access to exclusive secret ops intel? Check out the link in the description. Welcome to Secret Ops, the podcast uncovering the world of business operations, one episode at a time. I'm your host, Ariana Cafone, and today's guest is James Mazza, Chief of Emergency Medical Services for Montclair Ambulance Unit in Montclair, New Jersey. James, welcome to Secret Ops. When you reached out to say that you'd be willing to speak on this podcast, I was beyond thrilled. So thank you so much for being here. Uh, thanks for having me. I, I actually reached out sort of almost as a joke. I was like, oh, yeah, let me know when you want to do that um, to, to hear about our world of operations. And you were like, OK, let's do it. I was like, all right, I guess we're doing this. <laughs> I mean, if you open the door, I'm going to step right in because, <laughs> you know, I've always been fascinated with your interest in this. I mean, we've known each other for seven, eight years now. Yeah. I, I think it's incredible the work that you do. I could personally never do it. And I... I'm really excited to give others a peek into your world because I don't think most people really know know of somebody or do the work themselves. Um, but let's let's start a little bit back. So um, where you are today? How the heck did you get there? You know, where did you find your path to to what you're doing today? It, it was a lot of trial and error. Um, I have always worked two jobs from like high school on. And when I hit 18, 19, I had no idea what I wanted to do in this world. I was like, all right, I got a scholarship to college to, to do international relations and diplomacy. And I was like, oh, okay, I'll work for Homeland Security or something like that. You know, that whole post 9-11 mindset. And uh, I saw EMS as a stepping stone to law enforcement because, mm-hmm. okay, it's something that um, is related to public safety, gives you like that, that, that touch of what they go through, but it's not law enforcement. So uh, at 19, I started volunteering with uh, the Nutley Volunteer Emergency and Rescue Squad and worked other jobs in between. And then, you know, there was, there was a clip there for five years. I worked uh, full-time uh, ambulance transport company nights and weekends, but I'd pull myself out of EMS because it doesn't really pay the bills. Uh, unfortunately, it doesn't get the funding it deserves. So I wound up working either, you know, at Baron Fig for over a year um, <laughs> as one of the first employees or an IT company or even at a gun range. And I just kept getting drawn back into EMS because it was just something that um, really called to me. It made me go to nursing school. But uh, healthcare just called to me is particularly emergency healthcare. Now, for me, I'm like, that would not call to me at all. That is scary to me. Um, what do you think about it calls to you? Like, what do you think it is that the act of helping people in the intensity of an emergency sort of situation where the stakes are really high, a combination of those things? It's definitely a combination of those things. And uh, there's plenty of people out there who will tell you that they don't get the rush and excitement from going on a call anymore because they're burnt out, right? But mm. if we weren't as burnt out as we were, even still today, if I'm in a vehicle that I'm driving lights and sirens, there's, there's a small touch of excitement. There's a little adrenaline hit there. Um, it's knowing that I can help people at their worst possible time. Um, I always knew I was able to talk to anyone of any different type of educational background or anything else. And 90% of what we do in EMS is really talking to people and either convincing them to go to the hospital or talking through their ailment or or trying to 
dissect where, um, you know, what their situation is. And I say that EMS being basic life support, which is what I am. I'm an EMT. There are advanced life support that's a little bit more diagnostic, right? They can do EKGs and interpret the EKGs and provide different medications. But when it comes to basic life support, it's very rudimentary um, bandaging medicine and package them up, take them to the hospital and kind of talk them through that. Mm. What, so when you started volunteering at 19, you said, uh, what, what was that first instance like, or that first like week, like just getting used to what this world is? Uh, the first week we picked up an old man who had fallen on the ground and was wearing no pants. And that was my very first call, my only call. So that was an interesting experience. That was a, that was a welcome to the world. That was a welcome to the world, right? And we we took him to the hospital, and then there was nothing. And then my second week, you know, we had a uh, it was mid forties cardiac arrest victim who mm. we could not successfully resuscitate, and she wound up um, being transported to the hospital and passing at the hospital. And that hit me, you know, it hit me a little bit. And then some people in the field uh, used a little bit of what we call gallows or dark humor, and. Um, made me realize we did everything we could and you can't save them all. In fact, you only, mm-hmm. uh, for a cardiac arrest victim, even if it's witness, you're only saving about 10% in the field. So. Wow. It, and that's witness. 10%. Wow. Yeah. Oh my gosh. That is, that is heavy. I will say, Joey, my husband always said that when you would come in and tell the stories that it was captivating. Like it was, it was, I think because you just got a peek at life in a way that no one at 19 would ever get to see life for the most part, you know, unless you were served some unfortunate circumstances. Now, if we zoom into today, so you've been doing this work uh, over a decade or 15 years. Uh, Yeah. This year, this year is like 15, 16, something like that. I started 2006. So yeah. Wow. We've talked about, how you got into this line of work, but I want to talk about your day-to-day life. So what does that look like? What is James Mazza's day when he wakes up and he gets to work? Well, uh, it kind of starts when I first wake up, I go through my emails and my phone because, you know, 2022, you can't be not connected to everything that's going on all the time. Um, that's assuming that uh, somebody didn't call me in the middle of the night. So we have four supervisors, myself being one of them, that uh, our staff will call in case there's a situation like, hey, I accidentally backed the truck into a pole. There's no real damage, but it <laughs> happened. Or, hey, can we go to this hospital? And some of those calls are legitimate. And some of them probably could have been an email. Uh, <laughs> but. We'll get to work, and typically there's already a pot of coffee brewing because you can't do anything without coffee. And, and when we say coffee, it's like a, a twelve pot, twelve cup pot with like eight heaping scoops. Like this is hard, strong coffee. The one guy made tried to make coffee and was just like, "This is like tea. You can't. We can't drink this." Uh, and then the day kind of devolves from what, what emails came up or what I've got going on. So our executive director recently left. So now on top of scheduling and, um, logistical planning and trying to find funding for a new ambulance, I'm now also doing payroll, payroll entry, um, all of our fundraising donations that come in, I have to catalog them into our program and make sure that, they're deposited and we send a thank you note out. Um, 
It's a little bit of everything. Like uh, for us operations, mm-hmm. my, my, my day is um, kind of chained to a desk as opposed to driving an ambulance. I drive a desk and I have like mm-hmm. 35 kids now that, that in all different ways, shape or form come to me with their personal or professional problems or concerns or ideas. Um, or I have to discipline people because they're not completing charts in time or it, it's, it runs the gambit of anything you could think of might happen mm. just with the added piece of what we do may affect somebody's life in a way that what well, other companies don't do. Right. Totally. Totally. The stakes are just always at a higher level than in most situations because you're most of the time talking about somebody's life in some of the ways that you're operating. So I, I guess this is, this is a question I, I like to ask everybody because I'm just really curious uh, on the approach to operations within emergency medical services, particularly. So I think there's two different ways where you can approach operations through a problem first mindset. So, you know, something shit hits the fan, you've got to navigate it. And that's where you sort of pinpoint your operational strategy and go from there. Or there's the opportunity mindset. So this allows you to kind of look for opportunities that you can do different things or be able to develop operations differently. Between uh, an opportunity mindset and a problem first mindset, my guess is that you're leaning more towards problem first, just because you have a lot thrown at you on a day-to-day basis that is um, emergencies. But is that true? Is it more problem first or opportunity? It's probably, at least for me, an organization, uh, probably a 70-30 split problem first versus opportunity. Uh, We definitely try and seize whatever opportunity we can to work for us. And I say that we got a grant for um, the whole inside of our building to be refurbished. You know, we're in a, a fire, we're in an old firehouse that was built in 1906 and wow. we, we moved in like 20 ish years ago. I don't know. I don't know the exact date. I know I wasn't there yet. So I, that, that's why I don't know the exact date. Uh, but it hadn't been painted since we moved in and it was well over 15 years ago. So Lowe's came in and did some funding and we were able to get the whole inside painted and new flooring, which is great. But we had to all move out of our office like emergently one day because the project like it's like, oh by the way, we're gonna start here today. It's like we you are. Um so we happen to have a trailer which is to be used for large scale incidents. Um, so we activate what we call our continuity of operations plan, which is we work out of the trailers. So we moved all of our mm-hmm. office stuff into the trailer, uh, hooked up phone lines in the trailer, had the generator running and worked out of the trailer for about three weeks. Wow. Yeah. It's so funny. Cause I've written up, you know, business continuity plans, emergency response plans. I've never had to use one. And I love that you had to use it in the case of a remodel. Yeah. <laughs> it's always how it goes. <laughs> yeah. But it was, a, it was a good exercise like that. And that's where I think the opportunity comes from. Like, it, okay, it was a crisis and we had to kind of just like deal with it in the moment. But we also saw the opportunity, like not, we're not just dealing with it in the moment. We're going to exercise the, the plan and see where, what works. And we discovered that after three weeks of intensive use of the usage on the generator, it kind of needs to be serviced because after the end of the third week, it just was like, all right, we're done. <laughs> that is, that's actually a very good point though. Like how often are you implementing these things and doing these trial runs, but how important could that be in an entirely different situation? Like 10 out of 10 important. So 
thank you, Lowe's, for remodeling and <laughs> So before I go into the next phase, I just have a question that's like maybe a little kid Ariana question, but like, what is it like to drive an ambulance? Tell us. <laughs> Mildly exciting, a little terrifying, kind of um, lame in the sense that you're basically driving a box on wheels, right? Like it, mm. it's not it's not aerodynamic. It doesn't take turns. Great. It, it, it's 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 a big beefy vehicle, and then nobody stops for you. So you're going lights and sirens. You come to a red light. Nobody stops. You've got f- family members trying to follow you to the hospital. That we tell, hey don't follow us through a red light because they're not going to stop for me. They're not, they're really not going to stop for you. Oh man. So what's interesting and there's a lot of of data coming out. You're probably going to see over the next five years, you're already starting to see a lot of this um, among some agencies. You're not going to see ambulances going lights and sirens as much anymore, at least in non urban Mm. settings. Mm. The the data is showing that the amount of time saved going to the hospital, lights and sirens, is anywhere from 30 seconds to two minutes. And once they're in the ambulance already, that typically that's not, except in certain circumstances where it is, um, that's not going to make life or death situation. But the odds of getting into a car accident go up dramatically because the drivers, if they're younger and experienced their their adrenaline goes up even the older drivers their adrenaline oh goes up just, i get sweaty every time i hear an ambulance i'm like pull over i'm sweating <laughs> and, I, and i don't even mean just the the people on the road i mean the person driving the ambulance too right like oh, we're, yeah. tra- yes, we're yes. trained but it does change the dynamic um mm. so there the data is coming out new jersey's been rolling out um a lot of like sterile cockpit uh, don't you know hands on the wheel your your passenger hits the siren which we all are used to like one hand at, at the top of the wheel right hand down hitting the siren and they they're trying to move us away from that and really move us to an idea where you're only using lights and sirens to go to the hospital if it's a true life-threatening emergency wow the stuff that we do is you know medicine and science driven so mm-hmm. as these studies come out the field changes every couple of years my God, that is that is fascinating and not what I expected from what is it like to drive an ambulance. This literally, <laughs> this literally, this literally gets into, I think. It's really cool, the, though. <laughs> okay, that's what I was expecting. But what I'm so glad that you sort of broke down for us there is one part of your job has so many different components that you're thinking about. You're thinking about, in this case, traffic, vehicles, emotional responses, when it comes to operations, the easiest way I've been able to dissect it across all different kinds of operations is it is made up of people, process, and technology. So I would love to dive into each of those just to, uh, I guess, talk more about how you view that. So kicking off with, let's start with technology. What are some pieces of technology that you have to think about Ah, the biggest piece, obviously, is ambulances, right? They are not just a box on wheels, even though that's why I describe them as. They have different um, systems inside them, different control systems for the lights, the sirens. They also now have to have um, center mounts for the cots so that if the ambulance rolls over, the cot doesn't break free and harm the people in the back or the patient. Um, and those center mount cot- cots, those are actually... Um, 
what they call power loads. So the EMT doesn't have to hurt their back. You you hook it in, press a button, and it kind of loads itself. It's saving the strain. Oh, wow. and, yeah, but with with stuff like that, you're looking at fifty thousand dollars an ambulance just for that whole setup. Um, oh my gosh. What, what was when that came into being? Because we're, we're thinking about like, this is a whole different kind of layer of technology. This is, you know, physical engineering. This is maybe in some cases robotics. What was it like using one of those for the first time? Um, it, it's interesting because you're, you're not used to it where you just press a button and it lifts up. Our agency doesn't even have that technology yet. We still we have electric stretchers, which is even is mm. still pretty easy where you still have to hold the stretcher up and pre- you can press a button and just lifts the legs and you push. But the newer stuff is even more advanced where you just hook it in, press a button and the legs come up and it loads it just like all the weights on the system. Um, wow. And that does change who then can work within this kind of line of work as well, too, because I'm sure there's physical restrictions just based on what you're having to do on a daily day, on a daily basis. Yeah. Um, we come up with technological workarounds for stuff like that. Uh, so that that's that's the ambulances technology piece. Then, you know, we do electric. When I started, it was all paper charts. You you'd go out with a clipboard and a piece, you know, like one of those um uh, p- pieces of paper that you can oh the carbon copies the carbon copies yeah, yeah. Love the those yellow carbon copies pink, <laughs> pink goes to the patient yellow goes to the hospital <laughs> white goes with us um, but now it's all computers so now we have to have these tough books which mm, are rated to not break under the rigors that we do but are constantly running into issues where okay this part of the keyboard's broken. Is it under warranty? Do we have to buy a new mm. keyboard? Um, you've got radios, which, you know, you go on eBay and you look up a Motorola radio, you can find an old radio for like $1,200. Yeah. Um, the brand new encrypted radios that the state of New Jersey has moved towards that allow the radio transmissions to remain private and access certain channels. Well, that's about $8,000 a pop. Um, wow. The, the, um, the technology we use just constantly is evolving. In certain cases, it is definitely um, predicated on medicine. So when I started, we used something called a backboard. And what a backboard is, is literally a board or a spine board. There also could be called. It's a board you'd use to immobilize a person who's been in a traumatic injury a car accident or a fall or something. It's like we want to immobilize their spine and keep their spine rigid so nothing hurts. That's when I started 15 years ago. Now it's like we don't use that anymore because we found that that actually causes more spinal injury because what would happen is they would go to the hospital, they'd be on this hard piece of plastic for four hours in the hospital, and now they're sitting there developing pressure ulcers or um, just new chronic back pain. So there was a study, I don't remember, this happened years ago, so I don't remember the specifics, but it was um, someplace in Arizona, and I think it was Singapore, they felt they were comparable in EMS responses. Arizona used backboard, Singapore did not, and the Singapore and in Singapore the, the patients had better outcomes. So, wow. Next thing you know, we ha- we have to carry them because you might need them still for certain circumstances, but we don't use them anymore. <laughs> so, like when it comes to these these the technology, the tools that you have, you sort of 
have so much research that's going into these that's constantly evolving, constantly changing. A lot of these, the pricing is incredibly high. The funding isn't necessarily where it needs to be. I'm sure that creates a really stressful situation where you're trying to figure out where do we put our resources, what makes most sense moving forward. Do, Do you work with other people in different um, towns or organizations to sort of collectively say, Hey, this is the new standard of what we're doing. How does that work? So a lot of these, um, these directives come out from the state department of health. So it's, uh, I want to call them unfunded mandates because that's what they are. That the state says, this is how we have to do it. And we just have to figure it out. Uh, at Montclair ambulance, we're trying to be very proactive with our, our partners, um, in other neighboring communities and, and really looking at the whole situation to say, look, Five years from now, if we all want to be in existence, um, we need to change the way we operate. We're 100% paid pretty much in Montclair, but a lot of the agency around us are more vol- are almost all volunteer. They have a harder time getting trucks out the door during the day or on weekend hours. Um, whereas they may get donations and they have money in the bank, they you know they don't have the people. Whereas we have a hard time raising funds, and but we have people, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so we're trying to open those conversations up to to those n- neighbors. And there's still resistance because it's New Jersey and everyone wants to kind of run their own little show. Um, nobody wants to discuss the idea of maybe we need to to change the way we we operate for the better. But I think we're making inroads. I think uh, long term we'll, we'll be successful and in changing some of the minds of our neighbors out there. But when it comes to like, when it comes to like the ambulance, like technology, there is no standardization whatsoever. The state says you have to have, make sure it does X and you'll have 10 different models of that thing that does X. And every agency uses something different. Wow. That, that's a lot to manage and think about. Even just the maintenance. I'm like, Oh my God, <laughs> no, thank you. Um, yeah. So I guess touching more on the the process and the people standpoint, because a lot of it goes hand in hand, I guess people is is intriguing me most next because you've got people that you work with on your team. You've got people that you're working with that you're supporting on call uh, when, you know, when they're in a high emotional situation. I, I can guess that potentially the people side of your job is a lot of what you're managing on a day-to-day basis, <laughs> potentially. <laughs> but but is that true? Is, is that Are you finding that that is a big part of it just because of what you're doing? Definitely is a big part of it. I, I wish sometimes I had more time to sit back and look at the process and see, you know, instead of putting out fires daily and uh, not actual fires or, or not actually negative. And I don't mean that in a negative context, like, oh my God, there's a crisis. It's not that it's a crisis, but it's, the people dynamics, you know, Mm. I'm working on the schedule for the month of December and how many phone calls do I have to make to different people? Hey, I know you put this availability in, but can you do this? Or, I mean, it's what, November 15th and I'm looking at the schedule I'm creating. I'm going to push out hopefully today or tomorrow. I don't have anyone as of today working Christmas Eve, Christmas day, New Year's Eve. Now that'll change because people want to pick up overtime and everything else, but it, it becomes almost like, make a deal, right? Like, um, yes. and I've, I've got a really good team. Like I said, about 35 people. I've got a deputy chief, um, who's been at the organization for about 20 years. And I've got two supervisors, one of whom has also been at the organization for well over 15. He was actually my mentor when I was volunteering at Nutley Rescue and taught me everything I know. Hello, fellow thinkers. 
Now, if you have been a loyal listener of Secret Ops, then you already know about our sponsors, Baron Fig, the company that makes tools for thinkers. Now, I'm totally biased, but I really think that Baron Fig has the best product suite for thinkers and operators alike. And you know what? I'm not the only one that thinks so. Bloomberg said, and I quote, that Baron Fig's products are, quote, high-end and well-crafted, which they absolutely are. Their Confidant notebook is the most delicious notebook that you will use with the most perfect dot grid paper. But it's not just Bloomberg. Actually, fun fact, New York Magazine, they tested 100 pens to find the top pen. And after testing all of those pens, they rated Baron Fig's Squire pen the number one pen. The number one pen. It's not just me, y'all. You got to give them a try. And guess what? We got you hooked up with the discount code. If you go to baronfig.com today, enter in the discount code SECRET20 and get 20% off your next order of $50 or more. Again, that's SECRET20 and get 20% off your next order of $50 or more. Oh, I'm like so jealous that you're going to get to see all this for the first time because they're, they're, their products are so delicious. Anyway, uh, enjoy, have fun, let us know how you use the tools, and let's get back to the show. Um, we have a good core group. That's my two supervisors and deputy chief. And then the rest are just EMTs, right? Different levels of experience, been doing this different amount of time, all of them, all di- across the board. And each of them comes with their own set of great things and set of issues to be managed that, you know, it's everyone wants to work the same hours. It's like, okay, I can't do that. Somebody's got to work the off hours. How are we going to make this work? Yeah. I feel as somebody who has worked the holidays, I get it. That time, <laughs> that time and a half is amazing, but it is a negotiation, especially when I think about how many people are you working with? You said 30, was it 35? 35 or so. That? Yeah. That's of a, which maybe lot. 20 to 23 are, um, uh, consistently actively working every week. You know, there's, I have some people who either, you know, they're on a leave for whatever reason, or, um, only are able to help out infrequently. And we, we make that work, um, Mm. for historical reasons, but, uh, it's definitely, it's definitely interesting to deal with people in this way that I'm doing it. Um, I've done that in the past. Like I, I rose up to the rank of assistant chief in Nutley Rescue, and I kind of had to do the same thing. I took over scheduling there when I was assistant chief, and that was a whole different dynamic there as well because you had volunteers and paid staff. Um, one of the things that I think helps us on the people side, it hurts us but helps us, is we're not a town entity. We're not a government entity. We're in a 501c3 nonprofit. So we're accountable to our board of trustees. So it allows us to be a little bit I don't want to say leaner, but there's no like outside the Department of Health and like federal rules surrounding nonprofits. It's there's less government interaction than you might expect. Mm. The red tape is 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 different, and it allows you to kind of be more flexible with how you work and how you exactly get, get the work done. Um, I guess this dips into the process side of the operations, which is you know we were talking about your emergency action plan, right? We're gonna use this backup. How, I guess, how often, my my curiosity is if things are changing so frequently with how you need to respond to situations, how are you tracking those changes? Like, (laughs) how how are you training people? Like, that just seems like a lot to be able to kind of make sure that you're distilling. 
So part of it is easy. And I say that because the state of New Jersey for an EMT requires in order to stay certified, every three years, you have to go through 24 elective credits and 24 required credits um, or, or they they. I'm going to call them core 13 because that's why I grew up with them. They've changed it to core A, B, and C, but it's a core 13 or your, your core of classes. And every three years you take these classes and they tell you about any updates to the, the, the uh, scope of practice for EMTs, any uh, changes to the science or anything like that. So I don't have to worry about that piece of it because if everyone has taken a recertification and they're properly certified, they should be up to speed on the changes that in healthcare that has have occurred over the last three years. Got it. That being said, we, we do like like to pride ourselves on the fact that we are a proactive organization. So some agencies will have a medical director who comes out of, say, Robert Wood Johnson or Atlantic Health or all these other different hospital systems that exist in New Jersey. We have a separate medical director who's been involved in EMS and is involved in different organizations. But He's very proactive to the point that the State Department of Health says EMTs can do X. He's going to write up a policy and a protocol and a procedure, and we will be doing X right away. Whereas some agencies are like, well, we want to evaluate and see if this is the right move. It's like, no, if, if the state is saying we can do it, we're going to do it. Um, so not every agency in New Jersey does this, but we can administer albuterol treatments. We can administer aspirin for chest pain. Um those are the ones that we can also do uh, what's called CPAP, which everyone thinks about for the people at night when they're snoring. But also, um, you know, if somebody has COPD or, or um, not COPD, but congestive heart failure, we can put this on them and it's going to push the fluid to the bottom of the lungs if they're filling up with fluid. Oh, wow. Yeah. Which so, buys time, right? Exactly. It buys a lot of time. And we don't use it that often because we're five minutes from the hospital or we have advanced life support right there. And they're usually like, we'll pull up and say, all right, we're going to put this on now. Um, so, but we have it and we're trained on it and we're able to use it if necessary. And there's been times where we have successfully used it. Um, but it, it's uh, not every agency does that. They, they, their, their medical director either doesn't let them or their leadership says, listen, we don't want to get involved in that we're kind of cutting edge on that process. And we mm. do yearly recurrencies and yearly training to make sure that our our, um, our staff are able to do that, right? Yeah. All right, now I want to break down this. The next part is what I call the inside scoop. So this is like the stuff that people want to know, but maybe we don't ask these questions. I'm going to try and ask them for the, the audience here. Um, and the first one is, what do you think people get wrong about operations and specifically within an emergency emergency services context like what do you think people can entirely get wrong calling an ambulance gets you into the er faster oh interesting uh i cannot tell you how many times so he's like oh i'll go with you guys because i'll get seen faster it's not the case the triage we give report to the triage nurse and the triage nurse will determine is this patient going to go into a bed right now and start treatment right now or, you know, um, evaluation? Or is like, all right, that can go sit in triage and wait. Wow. Yeah. So what, just so that for us, you know, outsiders, I guess, what should we make sure that we do? <laughs> if something's happening, should we just go? If something's I guess happening. the situation is case by case, of course. It, it is, but, you know, at the same degree, it isn't. If you think that something is off, and it worries you enough that you're thinking about going to the hospital, I would say it's always prudent to call 911. 
we can't do what somebody is say, oh, can you just evaluate me? Well, we don't really evaluate people. We, we take their blood pressure. We take their vital signs. We listen to their, look through their medical history, listen to their complaints. And then we say, hey, okay, what hospital do you want to go to? By at least in New Jersey, legally, EMTs can't say, okay, you know, you, you don't, you don't need to go to the hospital. It's always, you should go to the hospital. So if you're calling us, it means you really, you, you know, you, you're having a, what you feel to you is a life-threatening emergency and you want somebody to evaluate, treat, and transport. Um, Got it. If you're like kind of hedging, and I, I got to be careful how I say that, right, too, because during COVID, we saw so many people not go to the mm-hmm. hospital and then pass away because they were afraid of getting COVID and they would have a heart attack or a stroke or something else. So yeah. what I always recommend is if if you feel off, if you feel something's wrong, you don't feel right, call the professionals. We come right to your house. But don't think that you get seen faster because you can't be an ambulance. That's more of somebody yeah. who's like, oh, I know it's just the flu, but I need to go to the doctor, hospital to get some medication. The ambulance doesn't get you there faster. You're not getting preferential treatment in the situation of, oh, you're going to go skip to the front of the line. Correct. But if it's something incredibly serious, you need to call and, and get somebody there. Stop. Okay. That's just good to know. I think that our medical care system is very confusing for even myself. I've been in it over three decades, right? So you're always trying to, I guess, hack the system, but that is not a way to hack the system, folks. Do not go that route. You're just going to cause headaches for these wonderful humans. Uh, to that point, also something that I don't think people know, I don't have the exact states, and I should pull it up. There are only 11 states in the United States of America that EMS is considered an essential service. Oh, interesting. 39 of the 50 states do not recognize EMS as an essential service. That means it's harder to get tax funding. It's harder to get grant funding. It's harder to get any type of federal or state or local dollars because we're not essential. Wow. What we take for granted, huh? Uh, I'll just leave, you know, for your listeners, just John Oliver did a great skit about that about a year ago. Look up John Oliver EMS, and he does a funny, you know, in his his typical John Oliver fashion, great skit about how EMS is non-essential service in most states. That's mind-blowing to me because I think we all assume that it's just a part of what the resources that we have in our lives, but we, we can't just assume that, right? We have to make sure that we have that. You can't imagine calling 911 and them saying, oh, the ambulance isn't coming. Like nobody would ever process that. You expect the ambulance to come and it will. But that ambulance might be a private contractor. That might be a for-profit company. That might be a hospital system. It's not necessarily getting any tax dollars. So after that ride, oh, by the way, this is a $2,000 bill and um, you need to pay it. Oh, I can't afford it? Yeah, that that's great. You're going into collections. Like that. that's the type of mindset that's out there. Um, in a lot of circumstances, you know, we in Montclair, we don't put anyone in collections. Um, we need the money, right? But we're not going to put somebody in collections over um, a medical transport bill. Yeah. Wow. Um, I'm, I'm learning a lot today. I feel like I'm having a life <laughs> education um, talking to you. So, so I guess this goes, uh, this transitions into the next question nicely because the next question is, what do you think is the hardest part of operations within emergency services? Now, I would say that this is maybe t- tough to say what's the hardest thing. So if you have like a top three list, I'll roll with that too. 
Um, supply chain difficulties, definitely one mm. of the t- hardest things. It, it got pretty bad during COVID and it stayed bad. So um, defibrillator pads, uh, we placed an order, I think it was like midsummer, and we finally got it in October. Um, and, and just knowing, staying on top of that, like, okay, we've you we knowing that there's these delays, making sure we're ordering with more than enough lead time to make sure it gets to us. Um, you can just Google ambulance chassis delays and find out that there's like a two year backlog to buy a new ambulance. Whereas before you'd go call the um, dealer and within that same year, you'd have an ambulance. Now it's minimum two years, if not longer, because there's no vehicles to be had or no raw materials to build the box that's going to sit on the chassis, even if they have the chassis. Wow. I think we've all heard or experienced the supply chain pinch that's happened since 2020, but that is, that takes it to a different level. (laughs) That, that really does. Um, We've all heard of the staffing problems too, right? Like, yeah, Mm. my organization, I like to pride ourselves on the fact that we're not having uh, the staffing problems we that we previously had, the previous chief before I, um, and the previous deputy chief before my deputy chief, they we were working like 50, 60 hour weeks, sometimes mostly on the ambulance because there was no staff. They were able to hire about seven people and I hired an additional seven people. And we got to a, a comfortable number where we, for the most part, are staffed comfortably. Um, and I've got people actually fighting for more hours as opposed to like begging them to work, which is good and nice to have. But EMS as a whole is in a staffing crisis. Um, you have in rural America, agencies are shutting because they don't have enough staff. There's not enough volunteers. There's not enough paid staff. There's not enough anything. And mm. your trips to the hospital take longer because the hospitals have closed. So now you're going further for a hospital. Or when you get to the hospital because they're understaffed, you're sitting there waiting at the hospital longer. There's been some crazy absurd times in, in um, out in the West I've seen that were like four hours sitting at an ER waiting to transfer a patient. And now your, your service area has no ambulance and there's no backup. Um, so just like we've all heard in every, in every single um, business there is, right? Staffing problem. Our staffing problem is, is kind of, at critical mass. We were in this situation before COVID. It's been this way before COVID. And it's just COVID took so many people out of our workforce that said, we're done. We're not doing this anymore. Mm. It's not worth risking our lives because people were like, oh, wait, we're at risk. I mean, New Jersey lost more, just New Jersey lost more EMTs than died on 9-11. Oh my gosh. That's a huge, that's a huge, I mean, I, Listen, I can only imagine the burnout too. That it's like if it's at a tipping point, right? If you're if you put your if, if you're putting yourself at risk by proxy, maybe your family at risk, and then you also are just experiencing burnout simultaneously. It's the trifecta for that is got to be. I don't even know how that could feel to be just straight up. <laughs> if the you know, and your listeners are about to find this out, right? But if the average American understood how crisis mode EMS is in nationwide, I've seen sign-on bonuses in New Jersey for paramedics at $30,000. Whoa. The desperation is real and they cannot fill these positions. Wow. I'm like, 
trying to comprehend that number straight up. And that's from a hospital system, right? So they have, a, a, you know, I don't want to say unlimited money to burn, that they have you know resources to burn and they can't staff. I'd say those are the top two. I, I think, yeah. I don't know if there's really a third that really strikes me as like one of the biggest challenges because there's all like these different little crises that pop up and different challenges that pop up. But just knowing how crisis point everything is. All right. If we haven't scared people off yet, <laughs> if you're not scared yet or you're interested in that signing bonus, if somebody or wanting to become an EMT, where should they start? Like today you want to support your fellow, you know, emergency service people. You want to become a part of it. Where do they begin? So it depends on where you are in the country. And uh, I'm going to speak specific to New Jersey. Um, I'm going to get some heat from the, from some people for this probably, but I believe volunteerism has a place in our field. And there's a lot of paid EMTs and paramedics who kind of crap on volunteers all the time. And I think, I, I don't think that's a fair outlook um, because there's many volunteer agencies that hold themselves accountable to the same standard as a paid employee. And I think that's the key. So if you're looking to start out, Look and see if there's any volunteer agencies in your area. Most of them will help get you the training and pay for the training um, to become an EMT. Uh, and their response, their 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 ask is give us two years volunteering after you get the training. Um, and I don't think that's a horrible ask. And I think you know it, it provides needed help inside your own community or your neighboring community, right? Like I started in Nutley. I lived Definitely. in Clifton. I lived in Clifton yeah. though. So, and they're neighbors for those who don't know the area, Clifton and Nutley. So I think that's your first step. Truly, I know that I would not be able to do what you do. I just, I know straight up that this is something that I would really struggle with. But it's interesting <laughs> because it's it's like, uh, at, the, at the flip side, I know people that, like yourself, that are, they wake up for that thing. You know, that this is the thing that drives them. And there's nothing else that really gets in that level of, you know, gratification, I guess, than doing this kind of work. So it, it amazes me. And, and I, I bow down to all of you that are in this line of work. Seriously, I, I'm in awe. You all are the special ones. <laughs> um, we, we tell that to ourselves all the time. And that's the problem. <laughs> um, um, I, I will say, I think it's interesting too, because that was your journey as well, right? You started out volunteering and then you know obviously you've made this a career for yourself and, and you've really yeah. invested yourself in this thing too so i i do think that is sound advice coming from somebody who's walked that path before one thing okay. to say a tip of advice another thing to have done it and, and i hopefully if any i'm sure um people in uh, in the ems community because i'll wind up sharing this on my social media and next thing you know they're gonna have people breaking down the door saying what are you saying that for I, I also want to point out that um, to, to volunteers that may listen to this, right? Like um, not all paid people are assholes. <laughs> there, there, there is a lot of us out there that, you know, as long as we're, we all do the same job, as long as we're all held to the same standard and do the same job, that there should be no animosity between paid and volunteer. And they can live together. They can live together harmoniously. That's the exactly. goal, right? Exactly. Yeah. Um, all right. 
I want to wrap up with some personal questions, rapid fire questions, just to learn more about, you know, the man behind the scenes, get to know more (laughs) about you um, as a human. So I'm just going to shoot them at you and answer them as we go. And this is how we'll end this episode of Secret Ops. So to kick off, drum roll, I always feel like I have to do a drum roll. uh, What morning rituals do you start your day with? We've established that we need coffee of the most acidity but what other things do you need to start your day? Random Spotify playlist while I'm driving to work. Ooh. How how do you wind down at the end of the day? And I think this question is extra important in your case because of the stakes that you're navigating. How do you unpack that? For me personally, it's either playing video games or if I'm not in the mood for video games, it's uh, smoking a cigar, sitting on the porch with my dog, reading a book, very relaxed things going to a Jets game. (laughs) (laughs) All of those good things. Um, What book are you currently reading? That was the next one. I'm in between books. I have to decide what I'm reading next. It honestly is probably going to be The Laws of Creativity, just because I haven't had a chance to read it yet. And for those who don't know, that's my husband's book that he just released. So so, a shameless plug. (laughs) It is a shameless plug, um, but uh, I was... I'm currently re- finishing up rereading G.I. Joe comics. Ooh. What is your favorite quote? Like, if there was a quote that stuck with you over the years, what would that be? Um, General Patton once said, lead me, follow me, or get out of the way. Mm. And that one sticks with me a lot. Because it's like, either tell me, lead me, show me what to do, and tell me, you know, what we're going to do. Or if you're not going to do that, I follow me because I'm going to do it. And if you're not going to follow me, you're not going to leave me. Just move because I'm not stopping. Yeah. I love that one. I'm going to take that one too. It's a good one. Yeah. Um, in your life so far, what do you think is the most imp- important lesson that you've learned? <sighs> There's been a lot. Um, trust my gut. Last question. What do you want to be when you grow up? I want to be either on a beach <laughs> Relaxing on a beach or like one of those like apartments that overlooks Bourbon Street, like right on Bourbon Street and you're just on a on a, um, a veranda. I just want to be like there watching the party. Like I want to be the chill, retired, relaxed, like smoking a cigar, wearing a Hawaiian shirt. Everybody smoked the cigar and wear the Hawaiian shirt. I just need to be retired, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> James, I think I've seen a preview of that a couple of years ago. So I I'm, I can see it happening. I can see you manifesting yeah. it. Yeah. Uh, well, I cannot thank you enough for taking the time to talk to me. I really hope that the listeners have gained a lot of, a lot of knowledge from this conversation. I know that I've learned a ton. Um, if people wanted to find you, where can they find or follow you? So um, I'm going to plug Montclair EMS here, uh, montclairems.org. Uh, if you want to follow up what we're doing, it's also it's on Instagram as well, Montclair EMS, and Twitter is the same handle. You can email me at chief at montclairems.org or check my LinkedIn out. It's simple, James Mazza. Um, you know, I, I'm willing to answer any questions you might have, and you know, things that may, maybe you might disagree with me on, maybe you're in the field and you're going to yell at me about, uh, supporting volunteers or, <laughs> or, or whatever. Right. You know, I can't say enough about Montclair EMS and how much, uh, good we do in the community, but also how 
important support is, right? Um, we are a nonprofit 501c3. We do not get tax dollars. We, you know, we get a little bit of help from the town, but we don't get sustained tax dollars. So outside of billing people, it's all about donations. So, you know, that, that's, uh, I will plug that. And maybe somebody can keep me honest and uh, keep me writing on my blog for uh, <laughs> whatifhistory.com. Uh, it's an alternative history blog, you know, stuff like what if Japan had invaded Hawaii after, after the, uh, the Pearl Harbor attack, stuff like that. Um, I just don't have enough time to write it. So somebody keep me honest on that. All right, you've, you've heard the request, keep them honest. James, thank you so much for your time. Everybody uh, who's listening who is in emergency medical services, thank you so much for all that you do on a day-to-day basis that's not seen. Uh, I think in the last two years, the appreciation for you has just been tenfold. Um, And last but not least, thank you to the wonderful audience for listening to Secret Ops. Please follow us wherever you find your podcasts and check us out at secret-ops.com. We'll see you next time. listener, do you want to be a top operator in business and in life? Well, we at Secret Ops are here to help you do just that. Check out our monthly Secret Ops newsletter with exclusive intel just for you. From bonus content to secret resources, we've given you the VIP access. To sign up, check out the link in the description. And as always, thanks for listening.